Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today I have got Beaver Queen Sophie Pavel on the podcast. But before, I've never described anyone as a Beaver Queen before. Uh, before we do that, we're going to cover the news and keep it beaver themed, and that is that there are some beavers due to be released at Willington Gravel Pits. So for the first time in 800 years, beavers will return to Derbyshire. I'm incredibly excited about this because this is relatively close to where I live, so I can't wait to hopefully go see these animals. Now, Derbyshire Wildlife Trust have been given £140,000 by two companies to enable the creatures to return. The cash means that two families of beavers could be living in a 20-acre wetland habitat in Willington by November. So by the time this podcast is out, they should hopefully be there already so that would be absolutely fantastic. Now the trusts say that they will improve wildlife habitat and nature recovery as well as bring an economic boost through eco-tourism. In time the animals will create dams to slow the water through Eggington Brook. This will divide it onto a wet meadow and away from the village of Willington creating natural flood defences. So it's brilliant that they're back in the East Midlands and that I'll hopefully be able to lose my beaver virginity because I would love to see a beaver in the wild something I'm yet to do however one woman who has seen many a beaver is Sophie Pavel she is a zoologist she is an ambassador for the wildlife trusts and the communications lead for the beaver trust so naturally we do have a little bit of a natter about the large water rodent but we also talk a little bit about how social media is influencing our young naturalists and we also talk about her upcoming book forget me not so here's our chat. Sophie, well, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's nice to see you, albeit yeah. virtually. I feel yeah. like the last time I saw you, we were what we were drinking in a pub somewhere in deepest, darkest Falmouth after an event at the uni, right? Yeah, that's right. That was, uh, oh, the front. I love that. It's a real proper Cornish pub. It's probably the last one in Falmouth. But it's, I know. Uh, we're doing very unsocially distanced, uh, huddled in a corner, drinking lots of wine and things, talking about all sorts of yeah. rubbish. Although that was, <laughs> that was before all this madness, though, wasn't it? So yes. We were, we Good were, times. We were pretty safe. And I feel like I should um, address the, the elephant in the room, which was my email to you, where I oh made a little gosh. mistake. <laughs> So, oh my god, it's the best email ever. So I messaged, I, I, I've wanted Sophie on the podcast for a while and I messaged her about a month ago when I was in Scotland filming salmon and I uh, was getting eaten alive by midges. So I thought I'll mention that in the email and, I, and what, what I put was, hope you're well and good. I'm in minge infested Scotland at the moment, must have fed half the population of the buggers. And I don't know Sophie that well I and mean, I know her to say hello to, but I thought, I, I put it, she replied, didn't even flinch. And then I, I reread the <laughs> and I reread it and I thought, oh my god, she's going to think I'm some <laughs> depraved pervert who's just telling her about what uh, what I get up to on on photography shoots. <laughs> and, I, and, and I just thought, oh I loved my god. your honesty, Jack. I loved your honesty. <laughs> I think if they, you know, I'm, I I unfortunately have uh, quite a boyish, uh, laddie sense of humour, which has lost me the respect of quite a few of my girlfriends over the years. Um, so I found it completely the best email ever. No, that's good. And, that, and that's, why, gold. that's why you're up there for me, Sophie. That was, <laughs> yeah, that was good. I should say I'm in a very happy long-term relationship as well. But um, that <laughs> quick, was just... get it in there. Yeah, yeah, quickly, just, just get that in there before she gets rid of me. Um, 
So yeah, that that is good. And also, while we're on that sort of innuendo subject, beavers just mm. are f- all over Twitter. There is always innuendos on beavers, like, um, and it's normally you that I blame for this. But it's like, <laughs> like Britain needs more beaver. And I was like, I know what you're, I know what you've done there. More beaver for Britain. Yeah, things like that. Yeah. And I'm just like, and I look, I think that's, you know, I think that's great in a in a in a funny way. Well, and, in a in these difficult times, we must find the light. Exactly. Nature has lots of it. <laughs> and I am going to talk about beavers a little bit I know you get bombarded with beaver questions so I'm not going to make the whole podcast about it but we will mention it a little bit <laughs> and you you've just started a podcast I, I I see on the on the Instagram sphere you've got one yes going. everyone's doing a podcast so hmm. it's, it's through um beaver trust so beaver trust have been wanting to do a podcast for ages um and then I came on board in April and yeah it's just sort of started to get the wheels turning and we have brought out the first podcast episode is out today which is uh coincidental so yeah we we would it's just a podcast that basically tackles or hopefully aims to tackle a lot of the big questions that beavers present and is uh, very much hoping to talk facilitate the restoration conversation because it's just a huge thing at the moment and beavers are very much a metaphor for a lot of that change so we're hoping to try and answer a lot of the questions that we get asked about beavers and have a bit of fun it's we hope lodge lodge cast is that right? the lodge the lodge cast yeah. yes even my colleague came up with that amazing name no it's good um, it's really good yeah so uh we'll see how that goes <laughs> yeah it's it's tricky finding a good mix originally i wanted to call mine pond cast but i think someone had already nicked that so I oh, I love your name. I love. I think well, it's very clever. It's it's double meaning, like birds and and a, and a bearded, bearded and a bearded yeah, It's tit, excellent. So, it's you know, excellent. We'll we'll go for that. I but, love it. So you're comms leader at the Beaver Trust, is that right? So what what's uh, that involve, and what's what's the Beaver Trust? <laughs> uh, so so Beaver Trust is a very new charity. It's been going for about a year and a half or so. Started as like a startup enterprise. And the people who founded it have incredibly interesting backgrounds and are involved in all sorts of big environmental NGOs globally and things. And they felt that there was a gap for a charity that that really focused on ecosystem restoration and specifically riparian landscapes. Um, Because wetlands and rivers are some of the most rich environments that we have, and yet they're some of the most in danger of, uh, of uh, you know, some of the most depleted. And so they wanted to, to have a charity that was quite maverick, quite dynamic, interested in, in saying the unsaid and talking about the difficult um, hurdles that ecosystem restoration presents, especially in the UK. So Beaver Trust became a thing. Uh, they use, it's very much, of course, about the beaver. But the beaver, as I said before, is also a totem, a metaphor for a wider landscape restoration and change. And it helps itself by being an incredibly charismatic, fascinating mammal that has an incredible story of its own that people need to hear. And so I came on board in April. I just worked part time and uh, I came I joined when they were at a point where they really needed a bit of an oomph with their comms because they'd done all of this amazing groundwork and they were at a time where they needed to to, to become known and show show the world that they are a, a player and that they are an important charity to support and know about. So I help relay messages about beavers, answer difficult questions. We get beavers 
involve a lot of interesting stakeholders because they are disruptive. They are a pain in the arse in the landscape, <laughs> especially in a landscape that hasn't seen them for 400 years and has adapted to a way of life without the second biggest road in, in the world. Yeah on their doorstep <laughs> so it's all about forming we're really really um keen on collaboration and coming together so drawing ngos together hopefully we all have the same incentives and the same messages that we want to communicate so one of our big drives is to try and come together and put heads together and tackle these problems as a big sort of coalition as opposed to all have always having separate agendas and stuff so uh, yeah. we convened a pioneering collaboration of 39 NGOs, including the Wildlife Trust, Wild Trout Trust, RSPB, of course, Woodland Trust, things like that, to, to present our argument to the government and say, hey, we need a national strategy. We need beavers back in England. We need them legalised and we need uh, a management strategy so that we can coexist. It's just been an incredibly beaver heavy summer. But it's been fascinating because a lot of, a lot of exciting things have happened, but there's also a lot still to do. Yeah. So could beavers be reintroduced anyway, or do we need to be a little bit more selective then? At the moment, we're focusing on prioritising catchments that would really benefit from beavers. So beavers are really well known for helping mitigate flood impact by slowing the peak flow of water. So their dams basically just slow the rush of water so that it takes more time to have an impact. So you've got more time to prepare and mitigate for a flooding event. So we're at the moment trying to work identifying catchments that will have a high chance of flooding and whose surrounding land could could occupy beam as well. That's the plan at the moment. Uh, at the moment, you still need to apply for a license from DEFRA to have beavers and they have to be in an enclosure because they can't just roam free at the moment. But okay. we are steering the conversation forward so that one day, hopefully soon, the enclosure fences can be cut and beavers can roam Um, and I think something important to say here is that there's a lot of worry and quite rightly so because um, if you don't beavers are complex mammals and if you don't know enough about their behavior you can assume a lot that there's a worry that beavers if the fences are cut that they'll just proliferate like rabbits all over the country and there'll be beavers left right and center and it'll be you know like rodents everywhere but um, beavers are actually by nature incredibly territorial so they actually self-manage their populations by being quite feisty towards each other so you have a beaver group a couple miles upstream you have another beaver group they hate each other they don't hate each other but they sort of (laughs) you know they don't want to they don't want to mix no you know you're not going to get beavers everywhere because they're quite vicious towards each other and they will just kind of reach carrying capacity that albeit it's probably higher than our rivers can uh, in terms of socially in the farming the farmland socially around can manage but basically beavers aren't just going to run riot they do kind of reach out and say right you know let's just stop the mating and relax <laughs> let's just have a cold shower <laughs> let's calm it down a little bit <laughs> that's exactly what they say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm yet i'm yet to see a a, a beaver I'd, I'd absolutely love to you know be one of my bucket list species i've, I've been to tay 
River Tain, Scotland to look. I've been, Ooh, I even went to Derek, Derek Gale's farm and I didn't see one. Mm-hmm. I've, all, yeah, like, oh, I've guaranteed to see oh, one. And I, so I'm, going on? I know Come it's bad. Come to the otter. I'll show you where they are. I should, I really, yeah, I'd like to visit the otter. I, I love that as well, a river called the River Otter, but there's beavers on it. But um, I know, oh my gosh, I get it mixed up so much. I'm often like, oh, we've got otters down on the River Beaver, but we have got otters down there, but it is just also still the River Otter. Yeah. And then right. a lot of people are like, um, what are these otter beavers that people keep talking about? They're some kind of hybrid. Yeah, that would that <laughs> but, would be something to go see. Yes, yes. But no, you come down to the otter, and I'll show you. I'll show you where they are. That they're be, now yeah, free. I, I would definitely, definitely take you up on that. That would be that would be great. I mean, there are. I know there are plans to reintroduce some at Willington in Derbyshire. I don't know if you've come across that yeah. one. I'm, so that that's kind of close to me. Um, so it's nice to hear all these little. Kind of, and Norfolk, I think Norfolk's pockets. meant to get some as well, isn't there? So, um, Nep down in Suffolk. Yeah, so it's good. It's it, the ball's rolling with it, which is which is great. Indeed. Yes. So, what I, I, I normally see you, well, I think what you talked about um, when you were in Falmouth actually was kind of social media and the impact mm-hmm. that has with, with young people. So, I wondered what role has Instagram and social media in general played on young naturalists? Oh, good question. I think broadly it has done an incredible job at just facilitating a conversation and becoming a safe space where people who perhaps in school or at uni felt a little bit isolated in their love of nature so they really really loved it but they just felt that that wasn't that passion wasn't shared with enough people or it was seen as really lame I think Instagram has been amazing at making it more normal and making yeah. it okay to obsess about birds and making it okay to have a little feather fetish, if that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, um, I won't delve into that one, but yeah, okay. Say <laughs> <laughs> so no more. And I think it's just made people feel encouraged that, that there are other people who think the same as them and who are concerned about the environment but want to tell more people about it and I also think it's an amazing space for people to just be who they are and there is the flip side of that where there are I hate social media sometimes because it makes you compare yourself to and it makes you feel a bit inadequate and often it makes you kind of lose your sense of why you wanted to get in this space in the first place if you to just be comfortable with your personality so so I think social media has been amazing for gathering momentum in the conversation around climate change and around the kind of youth uprising and extinction rebellion and has allowed people to be inspired and be aware of stuff that they perhaps wouldn't have been aware of. Um, so it's this incredible tool that I think if used wisely can really uh, snowball movement towards loving nature and wanting to protect it. But I do think we need to be a little bit careful with it as well. It's just kind of a constant game. I find. Yeah, no, I, I think you've summed that up perfectly, really. It's, um, it is a very useful tool. And I, I agree, when I, when I was at school, people knew I liked nature, but they didn't quite understand it. Like, why don't you like football? Or why don't you like, mm. you know, what, whatever other things people like? But I was like, oh, no, I just want to look at a frog or, or whatever. So, but yeah, online, you kind of are connected to more people. So that's good. But as you say, it is a double-edged sword where it can be a little bit too much. Oh, you, you recently had a week off, didn't you? Did I see that? You sort of switched off. I did, yes. Yeah. I switched off for a week, went down to Cornwall and just had a lovely time. And I think increasingly now, I think as I'm busier and the work that I'm busy with requires me to be 
have a clear mind <laughs> so I can yeah. think properly. It, 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 I wish, I think if I didn't need social media for work and if it wasn't important for what I do, I wouldn't be on it. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm so much happier without it, to be honest. And I didn't miss it once. And I kind of thought it doesn't add anything to like my enjoyment of life. I'm so contented when I'm not on it. And it's so annoying that when it's a night where I think, oh, I should probably do a post tonight. I just don't really relax. And I start thinking, yeah. about, oh, what should I say? Blah, blah, blah. It's kind of, it, it's, it's, it's a love-hate relationship. And I wonder how long it's going to last for i'm curious to see whether this obsession with documenting our movements and our thoughts and our lives is actually a, a sustainable way for society to move i think it's also because i watched the social dilemma on netflix last night oh, okay incredible documentary with all the like moguls of social media basically saying how it's turned into something that they are scared of that they didn't intend when they created it it's fascinating. So I think now I'm I'm sort of rethinking, but it is incredibly important, I think, for what we do. Yeah. Well, it it's funny, isn't it? Because if you uh, some people are really not scared of, but reluctant to say do the track and trace app, just kind of bring that in. Mm-hmm. But then if you're like, well, actually, your, your Facebook does all that and a lot more. Your, the app on Facebook, oh. to, you know, where you are, what you do, what you like, targeted ads. It's a lot scarier than just you know an app. We that's have gonna... no. Yeah. We have no idea. And if anyone is curious about that, I would watch The Social Dilemma. That's um, <laughs> sponsored by Sophie Pavel. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Where's my check? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, I think it's um, also a great tool, obviously, to reach new audiences because a lot of the Gen Z audiences who we really, really want to fire up about the environment are obviously mostly all online. So if we can reach them in a way that they would engage with obviously that can be a huge plus yeah no i don't blame you on a on a slightly more positive note from that i guess so <laughs> you you're mostly you if you've done much abroad i'm trying to i, I didn't scan uh, too far through but you're mostly uk aren't you that's fair to say yeah yeah i i haven't really had the opportunity to go to spend too much time abroad i mean i, I was actually born in the states but um all oh, right uh fun fact um yeah. <laughs> and uh uh, yeah, but most of my all my wildlife stuff, I try to focus on the UK because I think my parents installed in me and my brother very, very early on. Even though we moved from the states, that you know we need to really explore our home first and explore your island. And we live in this incredible place where we can be in the city one minute and in the mountains by the evening, and that's quite unique. And they all of our holidays growing up were in Wales, Scotland, the Lake District, Cornwall. And only when we were teenagers did we start to go overseas again because they were like, you need to really appreciate where you come from and where you've grown up before you start showing other countries, you know, attention. So um, I think that's kind of been so ingrained in me that I'm just so obsessed with the diversity of the UK that I kind of have no desire to sort of pay much attention to, you know, there are other people who live in other countries who can do that. I want to champion here and I think it's such a knee-jerk reaction for us to assume that it's always the abroad places that have the exotic wildlife the amazing stories the species that need saving of course that's the case but we can't ignore what we've got here yeah no definitely I whenever I tell anyone I'm a wildlife cameraman or photographer the first thing they're like is oh where have you been that's really exciting and I'm like oh I went to Derby the other day you know it's like not (laughs) 
don't don't tend to just stick to stick to the UK. So no, I, yeah, I, I definitely you, agree. Yeah, I mean, but you've uncovered some absolute gems just in your forays around British rivers and in the waters and stuff. Yeah. And you've kind of you've kind of revealed this amazing underwater world that we just totally overlook because fish is just like oh fish, whatever. But I think it's I think you're responsible for a lot of people's kind of renewed interest in fish. Oh, you're going to make me blush in a minute, Sophie. I don't... <laughs> blush. blush away. No, I'm serious. I think, it's, yeah. I think it's awesome. And I think um, it's so good to see someone young, you know, and, and kind of energetic doing this. And it's not just a classic old retired angler. Yeah. Apologies. <laughs> Apologies to all old retired anglers listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, so have you got then a... I say a wildlife dream, but if there was, no, say, no pandemic, no holds barred, if you could go and see, I mean, it could be the UK, but any animal or any spectacle, what would that be? Uh, oh, mm, that's really difficult. <laughs> I think I would love to see um, resident killer whales off of the coast of Scotland. I see. I've seen that. Yeah. Not to rub it in, but I have seen that in Shetland. Okay then, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but they yeah, are. I... They are. If you get, if you ever get the chance, get get up to Shetland. It is bonkers. Absolutely mm. bonkers. Well, I was up in North Ronaldsay over the summer doing some research, and I um was so close to. Oh really? Where they were, and well, at the northern, it's a tiny island. Of, it's the northernmost island of Orkney, and right at the lighthouse at the northern tip they said sometimes on a clear day we've seen a male killer whale before and I was okay. like oh god <laughs> and um and so I was there and I was literally like okay come on come on come on it's my life I famously have terrible luck with seeing anything good but I didn't see one but they did say that a couple it's always oh the other week it was here yeah, yeah a couple yeah. of weeks ago it was here it's just like, oh sure okay <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, but they just, I think it's just the enormity of them, oh. like how big their dorsal fins are and like yeah. just their, just their biology is so fascinating and their, their social structure within their pod and, you know, like the, the, they're one of the very few mammals in the world known to go through the menopause, the female killer whales. Is it's that just, right? Um, yeah. So yeah. it's like a, so apparently it's an evolved way that evolves like human menopause where, the, the matriarch, the female, has accumulated so much knowledge and wisdom and experience throughout her life, leading the pod, that instead of, it's, it's more beneficial for her and the pod if she saves her energy and stops reproducing eggs, and then spends her time in her sort of later years passing down her knowledge and experience oh. to the future females and helping to nurture the, the new calves and things. So, um uh, yeah, they're just sick. I'd love to. And the fact that we've got huge whales, predators like that, yeah. that are on in our waters. Well, they, because the, the ones in Shetland, because I mean, I, I saw the photos online, but I mean, there was one point I was stood on, again, I'm, this is probably going to be horrible for you to hear, but I was stood on, on the bank and the, the coast and the whales, it must have been more, you know, less than 10 metres from oh, going by. Shut up. <laughs> absolutely because i was going to get in the water with them i was like i'm going I'm to go film these guys i've got to get to have a go at this because i i assume they ate herring because i know the ones in iceland eat herring and i thought mm -hmm. these were of a similar uh similar group and then this seal came up and they just hammered it they ripped the fucking seal to pieces mm -hmm. and i was like no 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 i'm not i'm not going to get in with that i'm going to just stick to yeah, my nose 
yeah. <laughs> so I know I know people have got in with them and they've been absolutely fine. And I think orcas are so intelligent; they would know that you're not a seal. But it's just mm. whether they think I might have a nibble on him or, or whoever. It's whether they they want to um, to physically find out that you're not a seal by biting your arm off. Yeah. And being like, oh, that's not as blubbery as I thought. No, see, I, I'm pretty. <laughs> I'm, I'd be a toothpick to a to a killer whale, so that's no. Yeah, so no, very lean. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe um, maybe it's just lovely to know that they were so close. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, it'll stay with oh, me amazing. For, wow. for a long time. So yeah, get get up there, definitely. So you're you're a generalist. <laughs> I think it's fair to say you're a, you're a generalist in terms of nature and stuff. I so, agree. But I wonder, do you have a specific interest in nature? You know, you've got a degree in zoology and science communication, which encompasses a lot, but is there mm. anything that... that that really gets you going. My computer keeps telling me, and I'm I'm unstable, so I'm not sure what how how <laughs> deep to uh, analyze that one. Yeah, no, it's just um, <laughs> it's just giving you some some self help, I think. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in terms of something that really gets me going, I think I think it it really it really has to be beavers because yeah. I think they just represent so much, and I think the fact that. I hate the fact that when I think that I loved my degree in zoology, I had no complaints about it, but we didn't learn about beavers. We learned about other things. We learned about animals totally on the other side of the world, but we've got this incredible native mammal who we drove to extinction, who is the most talented, incredible engineer that can physically transform a landscape to be home to hundreds of thousands of other species, plus help us with flooding, help us with drought, help us with water filtration, help us to clean up the environment, all for free. Help us to sequester carbon. A beaver wetland can suck up three times as much carbon as a non-beaver wetland. And I think, especially now when we're in such an ecological crisis and we're really at a tipping point in terms of it can go either way, depending on what decisions we make, the fact that we, we even have to debate about whether the beaver is a good idea or not it's just ridiculous so it gets me going from like a frustration point of view yeah. in terms of this shouldn't even be a conversation they should have been in the ground 10 years ago yeah but um they also get me going just because they're so exciting and they and they could really transform our wetlands for the better um and we're so close to that happening um and the fact that i've seen people who are normally you know agnostic about nature and don't normally care about it as soon as you talk to them about beavers and you show them a video and you get some facts in there they're like oh my gosh that is actually really really cool and to see that switch of the mindset um that one animal can do to help get someone into nature um it that's really exciting um and the, and i think if we if we make a good decision on beavers that then sets a really good framework for future restoration because it means that we've got the ability to make a good decision and for it to benefit. So then when the next animal to reintroduce comes along, we might be more willing to make it happen more quickly. Well, it's a, it's a good job you like beavers because if you work for the Beaver Trust and you were like, you know what, they're actually shit, then that's how it's good. Fail. <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> they're so boring. <laughs> yeah, I good. mean, don't get me wrong. There are, you know, it, it is very lucky that it helps itself, as I said before. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah. there are animals that I do find very difficult to get excited about. Don't yeah. Don't get me wrong. 
<laughs> no, no, definitely. Um, yeah, well, Fish the whole... are not one of those. <laughs> no, well, good, good, because that would have been, I would have just ended the podcast here then. But yeah, I mean, there, there are so many species that I'd love to see back in the UK. It's difficult not to justify them because they should be here anyway. But beavers seem to be an easy one because like you've, you've listed all the benefits. They do like fruit. I don't know if you can see. That's a turtle. Can you see in the in the corner oh of my, my screen? So I I've got a European a European pond turtle, and that would have been native to the UK six seven thousand years ago, wow. and probably would have been using beaver dams to hibernate in, and would have been basking yeah. on them. So it's a species that would benefit from that. Uh, but <laughs> they they're lovely animals, but they're not they're not habitat engineers. It's not going to drastically change um, the river systems, but yeah. that doesn't mean they shouldn't be here. So um, they're a little bit of a totally. harder harder sell but yeah get the beavers back and then we can get some but i think i think everything has its place you know i think um i think we, we don't fully understand the role a species plays until it's gone yeah um and i think that you know your turtle could be filling a niche that we weren't aware of um, yeah quite possibly and could facilitate a link in the in the food chain that um was really important so i think you know we should be aiming to just conserve the habitat now because then that really facilitates it. It's so traditional to focus on one token species to yes. conserve. Yes, it is. The yeah. beaver is, a, is, is, is an exception in that it, as a keystone species, it, its presence benefits many species. But we need to think bigger. We need to think landscape level. We need to think habitat restoration. And then the species will presumably, hopefully, fall into place. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. Uh, he had a, there's a young guy called Harvey Tweets. I don't know if you've come across him. He does a lot of stuff with amphibians and reptiles. And he was talking about how um, conservation needs to be a little bit bolder and maybe change some mm -hmm. of its ideas on, on what we're doing. Because, yeah, we're fo too focused on species sometimes when we should be thinking mm -hmm. about the, the bigger picture mm -hmm. as, a, as a whole. So you've had a, a fairly interesting career. Have you got a highlight? What is there something that really stands out that you've done so far that you're like, you know what, that was pretty cool? Um, ooh. Uh, no, no, it was all rubbish. I've well, not enjoyed think, any of it. <laughs> well, I think it's because I, I, I just, loads of different things because I just, at the moment, uh, just associate work with just, sat in front of the computer but yeah. um if i'm going to be really arrogant uh <laughs> and up myself um, yeah please do when <laughs> um uh i think getting the uh book commission with bloomsbury in april okay was a highlight this year so i think that was just because it came at a point when i was totally ready to just throw in the towel and change industries because coronavirus has kicked off we were in lockdown everything was really obviously tense and I've been applying for jobs solidly with NGOs, part-time jobs for about two years and just had always got to the final stage and never got through. And so after, you know, the sort of fourth time that happened, your confidence starts to wane a little bit because I'm just like, hang on a sec, I've got a degree, I've got a master's degree. I know that I'm, I can communicate and I'm applying for a communications role. I don't really know what else I can do. <laughs> But as you know, apart from getting free work experience, which I've already done loads of anyway, so it came at a point where I was a bit low and feeling a bit unmotivated. And it was kind of just one of those moments where I think it's a classic thing where it's really hard to admit when you've done a good job. I'm yeah. going to be better at that. 
And I think loads of us are really bad at that. And I think particularly girls are quite bad at that. And it was just, uh, and I find it hard still, as you can probably tell, because I'm finding it hard to string a sentence together. I find it hard to just actually just say, actually, Sophie, you did a really good job. You should be proud. That is a big deal. You need to kind of just process that a little bit. And I'm still finding it hard to process because it, 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 I'm totally daunted and feel like a huge, great, fat imposter because um, it's a scary world. You know, it's one thing doing a video, but to be given permission to write something that people will actually hopefully read and that has to be factually correct. <laughs> that does help um, yeah 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 no i've made that mistake in a couple of my books made some shit up and no one no one's caught me out yet. well yes so 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 i was talk to you about it because it's just like do you go through waves of like this is amazing this is terrifying this is amazing this is terrifying it's always a fine line isn't it between arrogance and confidence i always find it is because there are some people and you're like oh good for them and then there are other people like you're a bit of a dick but I don't yeah. think I've not had that with you yet, and I'll let you know if I do. I'll just message you, and go, Sophie. Sophie, you're being, you're a, being dick. a dick. But you're not. I've not had dick. that with you. But yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, <laughs> I, I think with with books, it's the kudos almost. I mean, obviously, you know, people do it for the money, the, the brass of it. But there's or what 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 money there is. I can't say that I've I've been able to pay too much with what I made on mine. But it's nice to say here's here's a book. This is something that I've mm. done. It's something that people will own for hopefully years and years and and reference back to it. And it's a platform for you as well, because, you know, hopefully it will lead to other things as well. You never know who's going to read that book and think, oh, that's 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 well, so it feels like a, such a weight of responsibility. But it's more that um, I did it because I just felt like I, I wanted to say so I, you have something to say, don't you? And I think that yeah. writing is something that I feel co- more confident in than other things. And I think it's it's an incredible privilege to be given that opportunity so there's such a burden because you're like i need to do it right and i need to do it in the in the right way that isn't that doesn't look like oh she's just doing a book she's just having yeah. an enormous ego so i do worry about that but it, i think it's... because i'm aware hopefully it will yeah and it, it definitely helps to have a good uh, a good publisher on your side and, and I've not I've, I've had conversations with Bloomsbury I've never done anything with them but I'm told they're pretty good and I, I think they'll hopefully give you the space and the time to kind of develop your uh, your book with them so that's that's a Thank massive you. help but yeah. yeah I should ask what's your book about as well uh so it is um it's called Forget Me Not and um, it's a narrative book that documents a journey that I am in the process of making alongside coronavirus restrictions um, around the British Isles um, in a low carbon way. Okay. Um, So bike, train, public transport, kayak, walking um, to uh, find species or to just go see species in their natural habitat that are key native species that are at risk of a warming world or that have a climate change story to tell. So some may fare better most don't fare very well at all um i've got one habitat in there and i've tried to choose the i'm i'm trying not to give away the species too much um no okay i've 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 tried to choose the overlooked species so there's there's a lot of species basically that have like puffins that have great pr and everyone knows what puffin looks like everyone loves a puffin so i'm trying to choose species or i've chosen the species that i feel people don't know about and i think people should know about 
Yeah. Um, but they are all native and the whole point of the low carbon thing is that you know it's very indulgent to be able to go on a trip anyway let alone to write a book about it so I just wanted to do it in a perhaps more mindful way um, by being aware of my carbon footprint whilst I'm doing all this traveling um, and exploring how feasible is it to to travel to extraordinary places like North Romsey um, on a carbon budget yeah. Um, and and is our infrastructure set up to facilitate that so because hopefully people might want to replicate some of the journeys for themselves and you know if they haven't got a car or if they're a bit uh, short on money that they can still have amazing encounters with nature or, or an amazing environment without it being a headache of um well, I, I couldn't drive for the first three years of being a wildlife photographer. So I had to, okay. I had to get buses, I had to get the train, I had to mm-hmm. do all that. So it's definitely, it's not easy. And, and also if you're going to the mm. arse end of nowhere, it, it, it's tricky, but it's, it's it is doable. It, it is. is doable. Yeah. It is it doable. Is doable. You know. And also I think what has made me realize as well, especially the journeys up to Orkney is that the journey is so much a part of the adventure. I think once mm. you've accepted, we're so used to being like, I want to go to Scotland. I want to be there by tomorrow. I don't want the journey to last all day. I just want to get there. Um, so I think once you've accepted that it's going to take like a day and a half to get somewhere and it's going to be exhausting and it's logistically a bit of a headache, um, you kind of relax and you're just like, oh, this is actually quite nice. You know, especially during Corona after lockdown. It felt like such an amazing thrill to be on a train going somewhere else and like leaving the postcode. Um, <laughs> so I think um, it's kind of helped me be a little bit more mindful of the journey as much as the destination. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's been a it's been a, an interesting process so far. Um, and I've got a bit more travelling left to do. Um, uh, yes, I think the whole climate change thing is obviously a huge story and I think that's what often keeps me awake at night is how on earth I, 25 year old, barely out of uni, barely done life yet, how have I got to write about climate change? Like, you know, but one of the main parts of the story is each chapter I'm weaving in voices of key researchers and scientists and, and volunteers and field officers at the top of their game uh, with each of the species to... Um, contextualize the story there and to just bring in different you know I love one of the things I love about my job is that I get to work with amazing people and talk to amazing people who are kind of on the front line and you must find this as well with your travels you know it's so interesting hearing people who have like dedicated so much time to helping a habitat or a species and um it's it's just a real honour to kind of spend time with those people and to understand what brought them there in the first place. Yeah, you definitely get some some characters is probably the polite way to put it. <laughs> yes, but you, you get do. some very interesting people, but no, and they are love, you know, lovely, and you know, you'll you'll meet Real someone. Salt of the earth, I think. Yeah, but you'll them. meet you'll meet people who have dedicated their lives to one beetle, one species of beetle, something yeah. something as crazy as that. And you're like, that is, how do you get, you know, and then you find yeah. out about their lives and it's, to, well, <laughs> don't say that straight away, but maybe. But yeah, it is, um, it is mad. And, and going back to you mentioning about the, the journey of things, like when I used to get the train from Nottingham to Falmouth, that was seven and a half hours to get down oh, there. Yeah, it but will be, yeah. the highlight of it was the train from, I think it's Teagmouth, is it Teagmouth, Teamouth? along the Devon Timmouth. coast, Timmouth, 
and uh, but you could see all the the waders on the um, on That's the beach such a there. Beautiful stretch, yeah. And I'd always have a little notepad, and and write okay, oh, shell duck, uh, godwits, and it was I, I loved that. It was absolutely loved. That yeah. was a highlight. But I but you wouldn't see that without getting on the train because no. if you were driving, you'd, you'd end up in a ditch. Yeah. But on the train, you can. You see you see so much change and you see how, you know, the, the city blurs into the countryside, which blurs into the moorland, which blurs back into the city. And it's it, I love I love it when you can start to say so when you, you can do this a lot on the coast really easily, of course. But when you start to see the map. Yeah. Um, when you see little dips and inlets and you can just start to, oh, my gosh, that's looks like that on the OS map and you can start to sort of see it and it, um it's very satisfying in a way i yeah. don't know maybe that's just me no i no, like I seeing the map yeah i can see <laughs> i can see that you've mentioned about your writing so what what's your process are you are you a marathon person do you do you you know rip it all out or do you kind of bit and bob like I, me personally i i'm kind of functional for the first two hours of the morning then my brain just goes to mush and i've got to go for a walk or something but I know some people, you know, can just, you know, Stephen King it and rip out a book in a, in a, in a short amount of time. So how's that work for you? Um, I'm not too sure yet. I haven't done <laughs> enough of it. To, <laughs> I haven't done it. I don't feel like I've done enough to know whether I'm making good progress or not. But I think I like to just write everything that I want to say, literally just brain dump it and then go through nitpick, chop, change. But I have to, because of my work, um, the Beaver Trust, which is two and a half days a week, I have to. I only have two-ish days to write, and I find it quite hard. It takes quite a long time to get in the zone of a good writing flow. So often, I find that the day after Beaver Trust, I spend a day kind of just sort of organising stuff, transcribing an interview, getting little admin bits done. Then I'm like, oh, I should write, and then I'm like, oh, but I kind of need. Once I get into a good zone, I want like four days of just solid writing. But I do have to step away from it as well um and that's why it just takes so long because you just got to go back to it again and again and again every sentence i've written so far has probably been changed like 10 times already <laughs> because you just sort of see it in a completely different way when you have a break from it but i think it's more that uh, quite methodical and i think i'm trying to approach it a bit like a dissertation at uni where each chapter is just a little dissertation um, and just trying to get all of my research done on a document and then the interviews done and then kind of just vomit on the page. But <laughs> I don't really know. I don't really know if there's a hard and fast way of doing it. But I think um, just that's why I'm starting to enjoy time away from social media because writing is just naturally so much better. Head is clearer when you haven't got that distraction. Yeah, everyone, so, everyone's going to be different. They're all going to have the different ways of doing it. And yeah, I think it's good to kind of get a yeah, clear head. Yeah, I, I remember hearing a, hearing an interview with Dawn French once on a podcast and she writes a lot of books and she was saying, um, oh, whenever I'm writing a book, I handwrite it on pen and paper. Cause she's like, I, and I can kind of see what she means by like, I handwrite all of my notes. Yeah, same. Um, you know, it helps you think it through, but actually writing the actual copy <laughs> on pen and paper, I was like, what if you lose it? What if the window's open and it's like a classic Love Actually uh, Colin Firth thing where they all float yeah. away and then there's your book gone. So well, the dog eats um, it. Yeah, literally. <laughs> so, uh, um, oh, yes, everyone has their process. 
uh, but I am still feel, feeling very much an infant, but I don't really know what mine, what mine is yet. But Yeah. Well, look, I can't wait to uh, see the book when it's, is it, it'd be not for a while yet, I'm guessing. Oh, ages. Thank ages. God. Um, <laughs> coming <laughs> ages. Coming in ages. Uh, <laughs> spring, spring 2022 is the, is the plan. Ace. Well, um, I will look out for it. But look, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Oh, it's been so fun. It's gone so quickly. There you go. That's good. What if you'd have Thanks. been like, oh, is this is drag? Jack's a right boring bastard. So that that's uh... a tit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Um, <laughs> no, it's been so much fun, and I'm such a big fan of the podcast. I love when you you get on, and um, thanks for letting me waffle on and on. No, it's been great. Very but yeah, fun. I'm sure we will cross paths at some point soon. Yes, that'd be great. That was Sophie Pavel. She's an absolute blast to talk to. It's always a pleasure. Uh, definitely check her out on Instagram. It's Sophie Pavs if you want to give her uh, a little follow and check out some of the stories that she does. It's always a, a hoot to see them pop up. So that brings me on to my top five. And today I thought I'd go for top five autumnal kind of nature experiences. So five things you can do this autumn. Although I think by the time this comes out, uh, it might be kind of done by a lot of these, but you can bear it in mind. So the first one is the Red Deer Rut. It's one of those amazing experiences. Most of us experience it in a deer park, uh, which I have to admit, it's not quite the same as going to the Scottish Highlands and seeing it, but it's a lot easier in a deer park. And you still get that experience of those male stags uh, bellowing or bolving, I think is the correct term, and it just reverberates through you as as they do it. Obviously, be very careful. I mean, my local deer park is Woolerton, uh, Woolerton Deer Park, and people do push it getting close to them. The male stags are pumped full of testosterone. The last thing you want to do is get on the wrong end of a male red stag. But if you're at a safe distance and you're there, you know, early morning, the breath is coming out over the, the sun's rising, that beautiful mist on the ground, it's one of the best autumnal experiences that you can get. Maybe only just beaten by my next one which is starling murmurations. Now I've been lucky that I've seen many, many wildlife experiences throughout my career, but I have to admit the top three, I couldn't really pick one, but one of the top three is seeing a large starling murmuration. Autumn and winter is a very, very good time to see these. If you've never seen a starling murmuration in the flesh, I implore you to get out and go see one. I was at Gretna Green about seven years ago now and it was just like, it's like watching dubstep. It was just mental seeing them make all these incredible shapes. And inevitably, there's always some bird of prey like a barn owl or a sparrowhawk that has a pop at them. It is bonkers. And starling murmurations are, are incredible. I always think that photos don't do them justice. You've got to go and see it or film it. But um, they are incredible. So go see a starling murmuration. They're, they're pretty well spread out throughout the country. So if you live near one, go and see it. A little bit trickier to see is my next choice, which is salmon leaping. And timing is key. I always make an annual pilgrimage to one of the weirs on my local river, Trent, to go and see salmon leaping. In fact, this morning, while I'm recording this, I did see some salmon leaping at Cromwell Weir uh, on the Trent. You basically want a good bit of rain, and then the day uh, the day after that, or maybe the day after that, as the, the water levels are still high, but just falling a little bit, that really brings the salmon on. 
but it's very, very tricky. It's the sort of thing that you really need someone on the ground to say, look, they're leaping, come and do it. Because they can be they can be done and dusted in a day or wait for the conditions to be right again. So it's a very tricky thing to land. But when you do see salmon leaping, you see lots of them, you can't help but will them on. You're like, come on, go for it, get in there, son. But I love watching salmon leaping. A slightly more subtle one, or depending where you are, is the mushroom explosion. Autumn just brings this plethora of mushrooms growing, whether it's in your... Uh, back garden whether it's in your local woodland autumn is the time to go out and see mushrooms my top tip for that is get out early uh, go and see them before uh, they've been picked or eaten particularly with slugs so just after a little bit of rain that normally brings a lot of mushrooms out but slugs can be a problem because they'll munch on them so you want to see them when they're looking uh, looking pretty pretty good and for my last choice which is arguably the most obvious one is the leaves turning I, I do like it when I travel around this time of year because if you go down south it might be two weeks early uh, two weeks later sorry so it might be nice and brown where I am in the Midlands but then you head down south and it's still relatively green or vice versa you head north to the Lake District or Scotland and they might already be in the froze of autumn so it's lovely to see that transition through the country and if you wait long enough obviously it will happen near you but it is an amazing time of year it's my certainly my favorite season uh, throughout the year so that's my top five autumnal things to check out. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. It was an absolute pleasure of recording it with Sophie. So next week I have got Gary Moore on the podcast. He is a sound recordist for the BBC Natural History Unit and he has done a lot of the watches. He's travelled all over the world with them and he's going to be lifting the lid on why maybe people don't gravitate towards sound. Everyone wants to be a presenter, everyone wants to be a cameraman, not everyone wants to necessarily be a sound recorder. So he's going to talk a little bit about that. And Gary's a, a character to say the least, so it's going to be a, a great podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. As I say, do follow us on Twitter, at TitBearded. Check out the YouTube channel, Wildlife Exposed TV. This has been the Bearded Tips podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will see you next Tuesday. Cheers. <laughs>